Foodraiser, a startup that works with FMB SMEs, Singapore, and also worldwide to digitize a lot of their back of house operations. So specifically, Foodraiser was looking at digitizing the invoices between the suppliers and the restaurants. Dubai World Expo, they used our tool in a slightly unconventional way. So normally people use it to manage their costs or to order from their existing suppliers. But at the expo, they were using us basically as an auditing tool, which was really cool. Hi, I'm Amanda Kua, and this is One More Scoop. Here, we're sitting down with Southeast Asia's top founders, executives, and investors to have honest conversations about their personal journeys and find out what really happens behind the scenes. Alfredo Molinas was the CEO of Foodraiser, a Singaporean F&B startup that he joined in 2020. Foodraiser got acquired by fellow F&B startup Order Easy earlier this year. Before joining Foodraiser, Al finished off his MBA at INSEAD and spent over seven years working in Asia at Rakuten and Education First. Hi, Al. So nice to have you here. Really excited to speak with you today. I had come up across you on LinkedIn. I've covered Foodraiser before, and then you reached out to me recently. So I thought it was a good time to have you on the podcast, especially with the acquisition happening earlier this year. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Really happy to be here. I think what we always do for the podcast is we try to get into a bit of the person's personal life, a bit of their background. So I think the first question I really want to ask you is, what was your childhood like? Where did you grow up? So I'm originally from Spain. I grew up in Madrid, but my family is from Barcelona. So we are Catalan from Madrid, which is always uh, an, an interesting mix. I also spent six years growing up in London before coming back to finish my high school in Madrid. And... Yeah. What was your childhood like? What were the things that you were interested in? I don't know. Is football a thing? Not a thing? <laughs> football, football became a thing only later in life, you know, after I was 15. But growing up, I really enjoyed Indiana Jones and Power Rangers. So I think I spent most of my childhood pretending to be um, either the Red Power Ranger or Indiana Jones and just going on, you know, pretend adventures with myself or with my friends. Like pretend adventures around like the city or around the <laughs> the playground, the garden, you know, anywhere. I had to have a pretty wild imagination back then. Hopefully I still keep some of that. I really enjoy that. I think that's one of the things that I've kept with me. Like I've always, I still want to be Indiana Jones when I grow up. And then what are your parents like? What were the influences they had on you growing up? My parents come from pretty strong academic backgrounds. Uh, both of them hold PhDs in mathematics or econometrics. And so they've always been very supportive of my, you know, my, my academic and career in a way, which so they, they encouraged me to study abroad. They encouraged me to, to get my MBA later. And they've, they've always been very supportive that way. And then when you were in London, what was it like during those six years in London? What brought you there anyway? We were there for my dad's work. He used to work for one of the big banks and we got transferred there. It was supposed to be originally for three years, but we quite, we really liked it there. And so we ended up staying for three more. For me, it was a totally transformative experience. You know, in, in Spain, especially back then, 
the idea of, of leaving, especially at such a young age, was very, very unusual. And, you know, it, it really opened up my world. I, I also went to international school, so of, and there were only 14, 15 kids in my class. Each one came from a totally different part of the world. That was super unique, super cool, and it totally changed me forever. I can relate to that. I think for me, I'd grown up mostly like local education. The classes were like 30, 40 people. But I guess a lot of us had similar backgrounds. But then the last two years of my high school, I got to go to, I guess, a similar school as yours. Everyone is from a different place. The classrooms were like 14, 15 people. It was totally transformative too. What were the things that you think really stuck out to you or the things that really impacted you during that time? I think just... One of the things was, you know, people have different points of view or people have even just having a different culture or a different religion. You know, during that time, I I didn't go back to Spain that often, but I remember this one time I did go back and I went to visit my old school. And you have to remember that that Spain, just for context, it's it's a fairly Catholic country, right? And in that, in my old school, in my in my old class, there was a new kid and he was Jewish, and it was just. The biggest thing, you know, uh, people couldn't stop talking about it and people weren't very sensitive to it. You know, they would make maybe jokes back then that really weren't appropriate. And there just wasn't that, like people just didn't know how to do it any better. So I think that's one of the things that I, I got to learn in London, you know, how to be a, a more global citizen. And I think that's a, that's a really, really awesome opportunity that I got. Did going to an international school with people with different backgrounds make you more interested in working overseas? Because I think that's something you did end up doing later in your career. What do you think it was because of something else? <laughs> yeah, so exactly that, right? So when I we came back to Spain when I was 15, and I immediately realized that it was going to be really hard for me to go back to you know a regular Spanish life, to go back to a regular Spanish school and have only Spanish friends. And that's why I, I asked my parents if I could stay in the international program, you know, specifically the IB, which has a very, you know, international, like outward focus. And I was pretty keen on not staying in Spain for university. And my parents were supportive of that, but they also said Spain has really good universities. So if you want to go abroad, you know, you got to go to to a nice place. Go to a good one. You can't just go. You can't just go to any old university. And I said, okay, that's you know, I can I can work with that. Those are nice. That's a deal I can make. And so that really motivated me to study uh, a lot harder than I was studying at the time. You know, I think I would, at the time I was a pretty decent student, but that motivate you know that this deal that I made with my parents really motivated me to to become a. a really a, a pretty good student, uh, at least, at least in high school. At least in high school. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what did you take in the IV? I think like you have classes that you specialize in like your HLs and then, you know, you have the more regular classes, which ones did you take as your HLs at the time? Yeah. So in the, for the international baccalaureate, the IB, you have to take six classes, right? And then three at a higher, more extensive level and three at the standard level. At higher level, I took uh, physics, economics, and mathematics. And then at standard level, I took, I I like languages. So my sixth class became uh, my third language, right? So I took Spanish, English, and French. Oh, so all your SLs were Spanish, English, and French? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, I didn't know you could do that. So well, because the, the sixth subject, it can oh, be... Oh, your languages weren't in the HL, so it moves to 
that so okay there it makes uh, sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i think it's because i only took like one language at each other like wait a second how do you do that <laughs> no no sorry yeah i took all of them at, at sl i wanted to keep the numbers courses at, at higher level um, and then for sl just have more fun you took all the harder classes at hl <laughs> yeah i feel like that was also one of the terms of the deal with my parents um i don't know that i would have subjected myself to higher level physics and but that's, that's what i have to do <laughs> <laughs> at least you made it out <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah and then um, like yeah go ahead sorry no i just i mean i that was also i mean later in my career i ended up in education and i think education is awesome but i always love talking about the ib i think the ib is such a cool educational system it really teaches you like how to like learn by yourself and some of the stuff that i learned in i mean especially with maths right in maths i was getting like i was barely passing at the beginning of the ib and by the end of it i was crushing it you know i was getting top marks and that's not easy for mathematics right like once you get yeah. i feel like once you like get once stuck you, in like, maths you just, stuck, yeah, you're, you're just stuck forever <laughs> you're stuck forever and no like I, I i totally grew and succeeded and it was you know, yeah, of course, like I did that, but I think it's also the system that helps you do that, right? You know, it really teaches you how to how to study properly, how to manage your time and, and work independently. I think like what I learned from the IB is all something similar, like coming from a more local curriculum. And I think what people say is like, you know, Philippine education has to be a bit more elevated, it's a bit behind. And I before I would come from school and I was like crushing it at school. Then I got into my the international school. They told me to take the HL math class because apparently that's what I passed. Then I was just failing everything for two months. <laughs> I eventually had to leave the higher level math class. But the funny thing is, I think when you're failing a class, you hate it, right? You're supposed to hate it because you're failing. But I felt like every class I attended, I was always happy because I was always learning something new, even if I was failing. And I think that's a really interesting experience in the IV because I feel like you just see the way that they teach you, the ways that you're wrong and the way that they think about it, plus like what kinds of concepts they test you on. I think those are really appealing for me because I, I did see value in it. And I think before I do a lot of like math memorization, but then in the IV, they would tell you like, these are all the formulas. You don't have to memorize them, but here are so many hard questions that even with the formulas, you still have to think really hard. <laughs> exactly. And I think you said that, right? Like the IB really teaches you the concepts as opposed to a lot of other systems, which like teach you content, right? Like, as you say, the formulas, right? And you spend a lot of time like memorizing the formulas. It's like, okay, well, you don't need it. In the um, real world, you have all the formulas on Google. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. So I think that's a really cool part about the, the IB that I love so much. Which were your favorite subjects in the IB? I did actually like maths a lot. There, you know, my, my dad, who is is a mathematician, he said to me, and I don't know if it's if it's a quote from someone or maybe his <laughs> quote, I forget, but he was like, there is nothing that feels as good as getting to the end of a mathematical proof. And I can totally understand that. In, in higher level maths, I don't know if in the other classes, um, we had to you know, do some proofs. And like, you know where you're trying to get to, like you know, you know where you're trying to get to, right? And it's like, how do you start and, and how do you like, use logic to get to this place? And that moment of aha, it's that you know, light bulb eureka moment, 
it does feel really, really, really nice when you get it. Most of the time you don't and it's super frustrating, <laughs> right? But when you do. But when you do get it. I think the stimulation of making it so hard makes yeah. it so fulfilling <laughs> when you do actually get it. <laughs> so I love I love that. Um, and also uh, economics. I did, I did like um, learning that. And it's something that I, I ended up studying in university as well. And having that. Again, also in terms of, of thinking about it in terms of concepts, right? So like, how do you think about the world using you know, economic models as flawed as they always are, but you know, it's, it's a different way of, of seeing things that may, I think I find pretty useful. I found it super interesting when like we had like economics class, I was doing HL at the time and they would say like, oh, you have to have all of these real world examples. Everyone hated it. Because you'd have to read the news all the time and then write down all the possible things you can cite and say in class or your essays. But then when you actually complete the essay with all the things cited from the real world, it's also so fulfilling. And it actually makes sense with the essay. And all those times where they tell you like, oh, you have to write this paper, find a real world situation, apply some economic theory to them. And it actually makes sense. I think those things are really valuable too. I think they just apply sort of the same concepts into every class in a sense. Even in I remember, classes. <laughs> I actually remember struggling with that because my teacher would say the same thing. Ah, read the newspaper, read the newspaper. And like we, I would, but then, you know, what you learn in class is so theoretical and it's so like, you know, here's a perfect, in a perfect world or like in this version of, of the world, this is what should happen. And in the real world, it's a bit messier, right? Because there's so many other things coming into play and, and it doesn't fit the theory so perfectly. And you're like, ah, oh, this is ugly. I don't want to use this because it's not not a great example. But, you know, then, then you, you have learn to, or that. Or you have to hunt for the great example sometimes. <laughs> yes, yes. And I actually did not like, like that. Um. <laughs> I like that. I didn't like the math at some point anymore. <laughs> How about for your, like, sort of the closing part of high school and you're wrapping out, I mean, wrapping up with the IB, wrapping up with high school, where did you plan on going to university? Um, was it just the US? Was it the UK? What was your goal at the time? Originally, it was the UK. Um, you know, one of the big differences between the UK and, and the US is, you know, the US has a lot more of that liberal arts mentality whereas in the uk you really need to know what you're going to study for three years and at the time again my dad the mathematician was really keen on me considering at least uh, mathematics and so not only that but given my what we were doing in the ib and remember what was it theory of knowledge that you oh, know, yeah. epistemology class that we had to take so my dad would would give me these books on maths and philosophy or the philosophy of maths. And, and anyway, so I, at some point I decided that what I really wanted to study was maths and philosophy as a major. And that's the major that is offered in, in the UK. And so I, I applied to, to the schools there and I applied to Oxford and I got selected for an interview and I went there and they asked me, why do you want to study maths and philosophy? Which... I mean, I know that, you know, if you think about it, like I knew they were going to ask me that, <laughs> but when I was sitting there in front of these people, I was like, I don't 
actually have a great answer for this. Like, I don't think I want to study math and philosophy, <laughs> actually. So we ended the interview super quickly. The rejection letter got home almost uh, earlier than I did. <laughs> oh, my God. And But it was, like, so mutual. Do you know what I mean? Like, I was like, yeah. this is not my place. I don't really know what I want to do. So I think, it, you know, the U.S. might actually be good for me to explore a little bit more the different, you know, what, what's out there. And so I started considering U.S. universities. I applied to them quite quickly because it was already the end of the of the year, and you know those had to be in by December thirty first. And sometime in March, actually, it was uh, on the day of my birthday. I started getting those acceptances. I got into a few, but the one that I ended up choosing was uh, Yale. Um, and, you know, it was the same thing. It's like, I don't want to make the same mistake as I almost made with Oxford. So I actually flew over to, to the States, like in the middle of the school. To find year. out what it would like, so you don't... Yeah, to like, just like go there and like see how it feels, you know, just, just does it pass the, the vibe check. And I loved it. I, I went to one of these, you know, I don't know if you know, but like Yale is very famous for its acapella groups. Mm-hmm. Uh, and there was an acapella. I, I didn't. I cannot <laughs> sing to save my life. I, but you like I mean, it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I just enjoyed it. You know, I was sitting there in one of these buildings that used to be a chapel or whatever, and it, there's these, there's this like acapella palooza. You know, all the different groups are going there and sing a little bit. And I'm sitting there thinking, wow, this is so cool. Like, if I can, if this is my regular Wednesday evening. Or, you know, or, or whatever. I'm sure there's like a thousand other things happening. Like, I cannot wait to come back in, the, in August or in September and, and just have this be my life for the next. Dear soul. So you accepted it and then just waited a bit before you went to uni, I guess. <laughs> pretty much. Pretty much. What did you do in the, the gap between like March and like the fall? Well, we, not much. We got to travel a little bit with my family. We actually went to Mongolia which was our first time, well, my first time in Asia ever. And we discovered, among other things, a newfound love for horseback riding. And my family loved it so much that when we came back to Spain, we bought a horse. <laughs> it's, it's, okay, I mean, there was a bit of a time gap between one thing and the other. It, was, it wasn't such like a, an impulse buy, but uh, yeah, my dad especially was super into it. So we got a horse and he was very keen on the following year doing a safari uh, on horseback. Oh, interesting. And, yeah, safari and so, on horseback, not just safari like on yeah, no. So we had heard about it from a family that we met in Mongolia. You know, you just ride around the, the savannah and, you know, instead of like driving up to see the giraffe, you like ride up to see the giraffe. And apparently it's super cool and whatever. Great. Okay. And my dad was like, yes, that sounds amazing. We're going to do the same thing. And we're like, dude, we don't know how to ride a horse. <laughs> like, we don't know how to ride and uh yeah we we all had to learn and and my family they you know i left for uni so i had to figure something else out but my family in spain we live in the countryside not too far from horse place and we got one and we would and they would go every weekend to ride poor old infante that's his name your parents still do horseback riding now or yeah, they they got a bit old, um, so so we had to pass Infante on. We had him for a few years, but we 
my dad had a bit of a disagreement with him once and he realized that he was a bit too old to fight the horse in the case of a disagreement. So he was like, okay, I think, I think it's Makes time sense. that he finds, oh, Did you get to go on that yeah. safari? We did. We did. And it was, it was really, really amazing because you're camping, but you know, the, the, the tour company takes really good care of you. So you're riding during the day and you're kind of looking for these animals and then kind of come back to the next place just as, just, I don't know, like four o'clock, you, you freshen up a little bit. They serve you a little cocktail. There's the sunset, you know, you're in the Savannah. It's, it's so Africa and <laughs> it was, it was great. Okay. Adding that to my bucket list. What I heard <laughs> was that you could go horseback riding to tour around New Zealand and I think somewhere in Iceland. Um, so I think the safari is probably the most appealing one because <laughs> there's more to see. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it's, you're just out in the wild. So you get to, you know, they, of course they take really good care of the horses. So, you know, it's the like cantering or even galloping, you will only do it in very, very specific places to make sure that, you know, there's not going to be any holes that's going to you know, injure the horse or whatever. But yeah. And then learn a lot about riding. You learn a lot about horses and you, really have this again this indiana jones feel right <laughs> like you're just out in the wild and you like oh my god here's a giraffe <laughs> so cool and then so you went to uni what was that experience like for you i guess it's your first time studying in the u.s too so what was it all like <laughs> uh so it was it was really cool I, I went to um i went to yale in the in the east coast and so that for me was so eye-opening i i mean from the academic perspective of course you know it was it was a new environment because i went from being one of the top students in my school to so average and you know that was a bit and even when you're working really hard i'm still only just like average. in the middle <laughs> i think a lot of people i mean you know and this happens to pretty much everybody and i think a lot of people struggled with it i actually didn't care so much about that because i mean it's like well i already got in and <laughs> two like there's so much other cool stuff happening on campus you know outside of classes and so i went really crazy with the extracurriculars i uh, finally joined a soccer team which you know i had been getting into soccer recently but i finally got to join one of the club teams so not varsity but one of the club teams which is you know a level lower in terms of competitiveness and it's not official we're not really representing the school but fun fact i did graduate what other extracurriculars were you part of at yale so you're not really into the academic side as much anymore um i'm guessing you're not as much into math unless there's maybe this math varsity team but let me know <laughs> <laughs> no i did so i got to discover you know in, in my school in london there wasn't a playground so i didn't really get to like exercise or you know be very active and in Spain, I, I started to become a little bit more more active in, in terms of fitness and so on. But in university, I really got to explore that. So I was doing soccer, but then I, I took up squash lessons. I took up capoeira. I joined the polo team because remember, I had to learn how to ride a horse. Oh, yeah, yeah. And so <laughs> I, joined, I joined the polo team. And then I did, you know, so that was all in terms of sports. And then I joined the... Yale, the Latin American Student Organization, which, I mean, I'm not Latin American, but at Yale, there were only like two Spanish kids, me and this other They're guy. <laughs> and so, yeah, they adopted us, you know, and, and it was because, you know, they get to speak Spanish and, they, you know, there's a lot of similarities in the culture. So it was a very warm and, and 
you know, it was actually that was the most like family group that I had over there. Um, but then I also I was part of the Yale European undergraduate, so I was you know I tried to do stuff together between the two of them to try and bridge those two. Yeah, I don't know, just like a whole. And then this is all these are like actual commitments. And then there's the whole you know when you're free, there's so many things that you can do. There's plays, there's the acapella groups, there's political debates that you can go see. Did you ever join always, a political debate? I didn't. Uh, you know, it's also. Over there, it's still very U.S. centric. And, oh, okay, not like world politics. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> not not totally not so. It's hard to join a debate or <laughs> anything exactly. like that. You don't know yeah. it that well. Okay, and then like so outside of campus life, on like the breaks, would you stay in the U.S.? Would you intern there? Would you go back to Spain? I would only go back to Spain for Christmas, and then at some time during the summer if time allowed right so a we would have basically four breaks you'd have like the thanksgiving break you know the winter break spring break and then the summer break so for thanksgiving it was too short so i would always go and stay with someone so what i would always stay with always stay with my friends from london so i had some of my friends from that international school were american they lived relatively nearby so i would take a train down and have like a very big american thanksgiving, thanksgiving. turkey and and all that right for winter break you know that's christmas in spain so that's like mandatory family time you know there's no absolutely non-negotiable uh, and then for spring break i would organize a trip with some of my international friends to somewhere in north america so or like the caribbean so you know first time we went to Uh, the Bahamas. Then one year we went to Costa Rica. One went one year we went to Mardi Gras in New Orleans. You know, we got to see, and I think that was towards the end. Um, one of the biggest regrets, quote unquote, that I have is that I didn't get to explore enough of this of the U.S. You know, campus life is so rich that you're like, yeah. I don't need to leave. I, I want to stay in this like Hogwarts like situation. That, I think, right? Because it's not really in the city. It's designed to really be full of campus life, would you say? Yeah, well, campus Yale is in New Haven, which isn't the biggest city. city. It's not the most exciting <laughs> not city, York. and at the it's not New York. Um, and also at the time, it had a reputation for not being the safest city. Oh, I think okay. it's become a lot better now, but there was always this idea of like once you step out of campus, you know, it gets a little bit. It can get a little bit uh, unpredictable. But, you know, whatever, actually, once you actually stepped out of campus, you're like, mm, this is just a regular city. Like, you just have to be careful. Like, you have to be careful in, in most cities, except, yeah. you know, like <laughs> Singapore, where everything is like so safe. Yeah, I heard that you can drop your, leave your phone somewhere in Singapore and it'd probably be okay. I'm not going to test that out, though. <laughs> oh, no, like, I regularly, like, you're just in the cafe and you just, you can leave your, all your electronics, go to the bathroom, like... <laughs> come back in 20 minutes and so that's how great. people can work from a cafe like here i would never <laughs> yeah 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 <laughs> well even even in spain right you can't like in singapore you come you sit down and you leave your phone on the table in spain you can't do that you can't leave your phone on the table especially if you're sitting outside like you're just rolling the dice there for no yeah. reason actually don't even turn away pocket. in general yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so after your graduation like what did you have planned 
uh, after leaving Yale, was your plan to go back to Europe? Was your plan to stay in the U.S.? Or do you have some other things in mind? So I got to discover... So Yale had a really cool program of grants and fellowships. So I picked up quite a few of those during my freshman, sophomore, and junior years. And I used those to go to Africa. I had quite a bit of an interest in Africa, especially East Africa. So I spent a lot of my summers in Tanzania and Kenya doing volunteering projects, doing research projects for my thesis. And I loved it. I had picked up a little bit of Swahili and I was pretty convinced that by the end, you know, some, sometime shortly after graduation, I would end up back there doing something. Not sure what, you know, but I was like, I, I think this is where like, I belong, as it were. And as I was coming up to graduation, I was also looking at, at startups. I thought the idea of joining startups was quite interesting. I um, got to interview with this very, very small startup at the time called Uber. And the conversation was going well, but my dad was like, this startup is never going to go anywhere. <laughs> like, let's, like, don't, don't pursue it. <laughs> that was 2011. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I think they had, they were just starting to expand uh, to a different city. I don't know. Like it was really like, I think they had 20, empl- 20 employees <laughs> or something like that. It was crazy young. Anyway, that, that also didn't work out because for international students, it was um, hard at the time to find and a, visa. a job with a visa, especially, you know, this was 2011, Just still com- coming out of that crisis, right? So, yeah, wasn't the easiest. And so then I was like, okay, well, let, let, let's look abroad. And I, again, you know, this Indiana Jones mode thing kicked in and said, okay, I know I want to end up in Africa. So before that, why don't I just go somewhere totally new, somewhere I've never been before, somewhere that's going to be really challenging in terms of, you know, the cultural difference, the language, et cetera. And so I was looking at very, very wide. I was looking at the whole map, really, right? And so I was applying to large companies in India, in Bahrain, in Afghanistan. Um, And ultimately, I ended up getting an offer from Rakuten, in Japan. And so Rakuten at the time was, I mean, still is a large, a very large e-commerce player. It was the Amazon of Japan. And they had just decided that they were going to be a global organization and that everyone, all the employees needed to speak English. And as part of that, they were starting to bring in international fresh graduates to, you know, internationalize the workforce and, and you know, help to globalize it. I mean, they weren't looking for totally random international people like myself. They wanted people who had some sort of connection to Japan. They had maybe studied there. They could speak the language or maybe they were uh, you know, of Japanese origin, but had studied abroad, something like that. The problem was that this was 2011, which is the year of the earthquake in Fukushima. And uh, things, if you remember, those, that was a very uncertain time for Japan. And people, a lot of people were leaving the country because they, they were like, you know, is Japan going to go nuclear? Like, what's going to happen? No one really knew. And so what had also happened for Rakuten is that a lot of those graduates who had received offers, <laughs> they were canceling, they were rescinding their offers because they, they suddenly didn't want to go to Japan. And so Rakuten was like, yeah, but we need headcount. 
And so that's why they were willing to give someone like me who had never been to Japan, didn't speak the language, wasn't particularly like interested, interested in the culture <laughs> prior to like, to like that day, a chance, right? They said, okay, well, well, you can be our, our guinea pig to see if some random European can come and join the company and, and succeed. I was like, great. I love it. I'm in. <laughs> and so I, I just, I packed my bags and I, and I moved to Japan. And then you're there for almost three years, right? So what was it like? Was it everything you expected? Yeah, I suppose, but it's like I had no expectations. Like my, you know, it's like, uh, how <laughs> could you, had you can't have expectations to anywhere in the country, anywhere in the world, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And also like I had, again, I had never, I didn't know much about Japan. The, the only point of reference I had was Lost in Translation uh, with Bill Murray and Scarlett Johansson. It's a fantastic movie. And I, I, to this day, I find it, in some ways, very, very accurate of what I experienced. So, yeah, you know, everything has a certain structure and a certain order. And like you're coming into it with a completely different set of assumptions and like upbringing. And you are the one who has to fit into their system, right? And you get into really funny situations. Corporate Japan was hilarious. You know, you try and have a conversation with one person, just like an informal, hey, can we like catch up for 20 minutes over this issue? And the other person will always be like, yep, yeah, sure. You know what? Let me just bring in uh, this other person, this other person. And then they also start bringing like their boss. And stuff. So you, you want to have a one-on-one and you've booked this room that's like appropriate for two people. And in the end, you have like 10 people, people like crammed into this room. No one's really giving an opinion because they're just there because someone asked them to be there. <laughs> <laughs> so bizarre, like all these things. It was really fun. I really learned a lot. I really wanted to be in Japan. I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to be here like no matter what for uh, two years. This is my commitment. But then I really loved it. And I stayed I stayed for three. And then I, I would later in life, I would come back for another three. That was for education first, right? So I think there you spent like time in Hong Kong and then you went back to Japan. Yeah. So a bit, a bit more, more context at when you join a Japanese company, you join the company. You don't join a particular job or a particular department. Right. So as a fresh guy, and then you, you do your, you do your training it's three months, two, three months, depending. And at the end of the training, there's this, you know, big sorting hat ceremony of sorts where they say, they just go down the list of names. They're like, okay, Amanda, you go to sales. Takeshi, you're in marketing. Alf, you're in legal. Well, I don't have any yeah, legal training. <laughs> I was yes, like, did I, I read his major wrong? <laughs> no, no. I, I, I majored in ethics, politics, and economics. And then I got assigned to the legal department. And, you know, like that's you don't really get a choice. And so I, I was like, okay, well, that's it. At least it. I'm in Japan. <laughs> At least, yeah, exactly. It was a really cool, it was a really cool team, though. I loved working with those people. And I actually got to do pretty cool stuff. You know, I got to help open up the Singapore office. I got to open up the Spain business. Um, I think it's been shut down since then. Um, Malaysia and working with all the different, you know, and, and I got to see a lot of the M&A deals, which is super cool. You know, I ended up making a space for myself as a privacy expert. So that was the time when the PDPA here in Singapore and the GDPR in the EU, you know, that was coming into play and people were thinking about it, starting to think about it. And Rakuten with had operations, you know, in both places. And okay, well, how do we think about how we store the information, how we use the information, especially like personal information, right? 
And so I became the consultant on that. Like I just researched a whole bunch about it and I ended up having to present my findings to the CEO. So, you know, I mean, the CEO, Hiroshi Mikitani is you know, one of the most powerful people in Japan. <laughs> so there I am at like 24, 25, just like telling him like how, where I think he should put his servers. And that was like peak. I, I felt like, okay, I have peaked now at my career at Rakuten and there's nothing else that I can do now that will be as cool as this, right? Like it will take me so much, so long again to be presenting in front of Mikitani-san that I'm like, okay, I think I need to look elsewhere now. <laughs> because, I, no, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kidding, right? But I think one of the things was that as much as, as I was learning, I wasn't super passionate about legal. Privacy. Yeah, like it's, I can do it, but I'm not super passionate. I don't love it. And I think such a detail oriented job needs to be done by people who love it. are passionate. <laughs> because otherwise, you know, your eyes, you can be very dedicated, but if you want to really look for, you need to actually be quite creative in the, in the legal space. You have to think of the different contingencies of, okay, you know, the contract says this, but what if this scenario plays out? What if that scenario plays out? Are we safe, right? Are we protected? And I guess I learned a little bit of that mindset, but not as much as someone who's had proper training and, and has a proper passion for it. So let's jump a little forward in time. So after you went to Rakuten, you did, yeah, and then you did your MBA, right? So I, I joined an education company and I did, I had a variety of different uh, roles there. I went to Hong Kong and it brought me back to Japan. And this company, EF, was a sponsor for the Tokyo 2020 Olympic Games. And I was like, that's so cool. I get to be part of the games, you know, the, the movement. And especially this idea that Japan needs to be, has fallen a little bit behind in terms of its globalization, social and, and cultural globalization. And, you know, we can help that, you know, make sure that people are, are, are better English speakers and, and so on. So I was very interested in that mission. I think from a personal side, from a personal perspective, though, I was like, where am I going with this? Like, what's going to happen in five years? What's going to happen in 10 years? And I wasn't very sure. So I said, okay, yeah, um, I think I'm going to step away from this, even if that means giving up the games and going to like, go get my MBA. And I hopefully during that time, uh, figure out what it is that I want to do. This is a terrible plan. You do not have time during your MBA to figure out who you want to be or what oh, you want to do. It's not a soul-searching plan. It's not a soul-searching idea. <laughs> I don't think I can actually recommend that to anyone in good faith, honestly. I, I think I got lucky in that I was able to discover it, but I, I went to INSEAD, right? So that's a that's only a one-year program, which... And, and it prides itself in being able to cram a two-year program into well, like 80% of a two-year program into one year. And so that means you don't have time to breathe or sleep, right? Much less like think. sit down and be like, yeah, exactly. Think and like, what do I want to do? But there's a lot of really cool stuff happening. Like I'm sure at all of the schools, like there's the venture competition, there's you know, this, 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 that. And so I, I was able to dip my toes a little bit into, you know, entrepreneurship. And I was like, I like this. I'm vibing <laughs> with this. You know, it's something like it's, it, it felt right in the same way. It felt a bit more electric in ways that like privacy and data protection. Didn't. I totally wasn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I was quite keen at the time, you know, I, I entered a, a startup or not startup, like a venture competition in 
with a gin, a craft, Japanese craft gin business idea. And now it's like, it's, it, it seems like there's so many craft gins out there, but like at the time there weren't so many. So it seemed like a, a fresher, a fresher idea. And I love the process of thinking about it and starting to execute it. And I even had to like try and distill my own little sample bottle of gin to Where? present it to the judges. <laughs> well, I mean, I ended up, it's, yeah, it's basically mixing different things. It wasn't great. It wasn't great. Um, but we had figured out, you know, how we would actually do it, who, who, who we would work with, where we would do it. And yeah, it was so cool. Okay. Maybe I should, maybe I should explore this. And then, um, this was all happening in France. And then I moved to Singapore for the second half of the MBA and then the pandemic. <laughs> <laughs> and so that obviously changed everything. Right. I mean, yeah. um, and, and that, and that was tough also for on the recruitment side. Um, there's a great, I mean, one of the most surreal experiences was when, cause no one knew, I don't know if you remember, but like no one knew, what was happening yeah like the companies didn't know the schools didn't know we like people didn't know and so we we were at this uh webinar you know one of those recruitment webinars by a very famous startup and they go through the whole thing it's a 30-minute presentation and there's literally like 300 of us tuned into this zoom thing and we get to the and the whole presentation is like how amazing it is to work at you know to hashtag work at wherever and at the end, they're like, oh, yeah, well, by the way, we don't really have any roles open right now. And we were all just like, what are you talking about? <laughs> why did you have this presentation? <laughs> why, are, why are we here? And the number, like, there were 300 of us tuned in, right? Like, the number just, like, plummets to, you know, like, 20 people in five seconds. It's like... But everyone was like, what? <laughs> what? Yeah. So, it was, it was really, really tough. And, and there was, in terms of employers, there were, you know, every, every, a lot of people froze hiring, but a lot of people didn't, right? So, Shopee, for example, was an excellent, like, it was a really big savior of our class, they ended up hiring a lot of a lot of us coming out of school. I didn't really want to join the corporate world, or like I didn't want to go back into like a, a really really big company. I wanted to see if I could like join a startup. During my internship time, I joined uh, an accelerator in Singapore. Sorry, uh, an incubator in Singapore. Worked that worked with water technology ventures. Um, so that's pretty cool. But then towards the end of the year. Uh, there was a message within the, the network of uh, a VC in Singapore, Cocoon Capital. They were looking for someone who might be interested in taking over a startup, one of their portfolio companies. And I was like, mm, tell me more. <laughs> so unconventional. <laughs> Yeah. So, you know, I, I reached out and, and they explained to me about Foodraiser, which is a startup that works with F&B SMEs in Singapore and also worldwide to digitize a lot of their back of house operations. So specifically, Foodraiser was looking at digitizing the invoices between the suppliers and the restaurants. And it was a startup that had done quite well in the beginning it had struggled a little bit or quite a bit during COVID, like so many other startups. And now the founder was leaving. And so even though the startup was very much in a distressed situation, 
the investors really believed in the potential of the company. So they, rather than trying to close it or write it off, they wanted to see if there was a chance to, you know, do something. With it. Yeah. And then why did you decide to take this offer? I feel like, as you said before, like it's quite risky. Um, maybe if it didn't turn out so well, it wouldn't play out so well for the rest of your career. I don't know, but I think it's just not an option. Most people would take, especially fresh out of an MBA, not five years, four years after an MBA. <laughs> yeah. I think also given the size of the company, which is not that big, you know, why, like what's the upside here? Right. And, you know, when you come out of an MBA, these things are not cheap. <laughs> um, and so you usually also go into it hoping that you're getting a job that, that pays so much more by the time you graduate. For me, what I saw was a really interesting challenge, which is very similar to how I thought about going to Japan, right? Like here's a challenge that is like I know very little about. I just, I didn't know anything about Japan. I didn't know anything about F&B um, or, or you know, really running a company other besides what I had learned at the MBA, which is the other thing, right? It's like, maybe this is like year two of my MBA, but like, it's like the practical, yeah. it's the practical year. Yeah. So maybe there's relatively little to lose. And like, if it fails, it fails. And I mean, from the sounds of it, there's um, like, it's oh, not going to take forever like to that. fail, right? It's not going to take that long. Yeah. Um, but, you know, if it's if I can really turn it around, like, won't that be such a cool story? And yeah. And, 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 and there's the third thing, which is, you know, the founder had left, but everyone else had stayed. So the staff, that, the staff that remained, they all wanted to stay. They were, they were so tired. Uh, they had worked so hard, you know, and, and the uncertainty of, of COVID like eats at you, right? But they wanted to stay because they really believed in, in what they were building. Even the, the CTO, the former CTO, who had left the company a year or two before and had joined Cocoon, was still actively helping Foodraiser because he, he was very attached to it. And that kind of loyalty to this vision or to the project, I don't know, really spoke to me. And so I was like, okay, like, if all these people believe in it, I think I want to believe in this too. So let's give it a chance. And then, so how did that go? What did you even start doing? I feel like you you jump in and what happens next? What are the first things you do? So I had been told that the cash situation was bad and, you know, the burn rate. And so basically in terms of a runway, it looked like we might have about four months Four months after you joined. After I joined. That's what I had been told. And then on my first day, like I go look at the bank account and it was like so much worse than that. <laughs> <laughs> what did you do next? I, I guess that was thing number one. <laughs> yeah. So I was like, well, we need to extend, you know, we need to find a way to, to stretch this out as much as we can. And of course, this was already again, eight, eight to 10 months into the pandemic. So whatever, all those obvious things had already been cut, right? So there was no office. Everyone was working from home, like no office space. The team was as bare bones as it could be. You know, everything was gone. So it's like, what else is there? I mean, I just went really into deep into our, our costs and actually found something in our cogs 
Um, basically, on, on the server side, we were like quadruplicating our processes for no real reason, and and no one had picked that up. So our, our cogs were increasing. Is that related to the privacy experience you had, or it's just like something you could see if you look hard enough? <laughs> well, I just looked at the trend. I'm like, what? This cost is increasing linearly, and it it really shouldn't. Um, so I, you know, then I investigated with one of my developers because I'm, you know, I'm not a, a big tech person. So, and yeah, sure enough, he was like, oops, like here's something that we're doing over and over again. We're repeating this process, but for no real benefit. So we, by cutting that, that actually ended up giving us like four to four to six more weeks, which was a bit more time. I mean, it was, I really it's needed that to like, to- <laughs> yeah, exactly. To figure out like, what do I want to do with this company? Right. I have to, I need some time to establish some sort of relationship with my investors to pitch to them my vision and and for them to be like this sounds good and here's some money uh so that was that was the first three months and just like me working with spreadsheets basically i was not like one of the craziest things for me is that i didn't really get a chance to look at the product that much like i knew how i knew how it worked right i could do the basic things just like any other user but i didn't have that like deep in-depth knowledge i didn't know where like every little thing was until much later because i was too busy trying to save the business for me to be able to focus on the product and then like what other things do you think were surprising or really insightful in your process of really trying to turn it around i guess like the first like one year was to be trying to reduce the cost and get the runway for like eventually (laughs) yeah so we we got you know enough runway for me to be able to raise um, so I raised a small bridge round at um, that lasted us like twelve ish months, uh, which was you know which was great, and we we saw some growth, and I was able to see uh, to to validate some of the hypotheses that I have that I had about what we could do with the company, especially with regards to data. Actually, Foodraiser generates very rich, very detailed data about costs about purchasing that most companies don't and i'm like i think we can like get a lot of value from this data and we ended up doing some really cool projects with some large players i think the one i can probably talk about is the one with the uh, dubai world expo they used our tool in a slightly unconventional way so normally people use it to manage their costs or to do to to order from their existing suppliers but at the expo they were using us basically as an auditing tool which was really cool we ended up making these like separate apps that like analyze the data for them in in large volumes and so instead of having they were expecting to have like tens of auditors looking at this stuff and in the end they just got three using using our tool it was great it's like perfect i'm like we should be trying to replicate. Them. And so that was the plan and that was the vision. And so I went, you know, it's like, Hey, I have proven this. Now we're going to go out, out and try and do this more at scale. And then we were raising a new round. And then that was the exact same. That was at the same time, the exact same time that Putin was entering Ukraine and some of our investors had to drop out from the round. So that was very, very tough for us because then the round wasn't able to go through and I had to make a decision about, you know, what do we do next? 
right? We can't, like, we're, we're out of money. So I had to just restructure everything again. And together with the board, we decided to go out and uh, sell the startup. What was the, like, the personal cost of that whole process for you, um, trying to really turn it around? Like, what was life like outside of work? How are you handling all of the, I guess, the stress? <laughs> so I guess, you know, I, I, wasn't, I wasn't a founder. I'm not officially a founder, right? I didn't actually yeah. start this company, but I suspect that the stress is similar <laughs> to that of any founder in that, okay, I was certainly not, I'm not the kind of person who works well by working on something 24-7, I perform better when I take a break and do something totally different. These days I really like triathlon. So, you know, I have to train for that or go out, you know, hang out with my friends and put things in the back burner. And then when I come back to it, I have, you know, fresh ideas. But still, like, just because I wasn't working on it, I think it's, you're so, you have this sense of responsibility over this project and over, you know, your staff and so on that it's always on your mind. And I had no problems. Well, generally I had no problems sleeping but I will always wake up with this sense of urgency. <gasps> what? Okay, let's go. Like I'm late for something, you know? And like, no one's waiting for you, but you're like, this, this feeling that you have to like, get up like and, and go out and do stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and then how did it feel like when you're in the process of selling it already? Like, I guess it's not, it's not a company that you founded, but did it feel like you were able to do what you wanted to do or what you had, I guess, planned? In a way, yes. I think at the beginning, I would have never, or when I joined Foodraiser, I never thought that I would be selling it at this stage, mm-hmm. right? I, I, thought, take- I thought it would take, yeah, I thought it would take longer or like less time, right? Where either like I would run out of money very quickly in the beginning, and then we just have to try and do something yeah. with it, but not at this, not at this stage, and, and certainly not for those reasons. But I took it also as, you know, this could be a really amazing learning experience. Like, I didn't take a class on how to sell a company. Yeah. You know, <laughs> and I, I had a little bit of support in the beginning. Uh, I had a friend who kind of walked me through, you know, generally these are the steps you should take. Um, but for the rest, I was on my own. So, like, I went out and I, I sold this company pretty much on my own. And it's like, at first, it was really daunting. And then I realized that selling a company, first of all, everyone's doing it all the time. And so people are very ready to have this conversation. And there are some people whose job it is to buy companies and sell companies. And I learned a lot. And it's uh, one of the things that surprised me is that it's actually not that different from selling literally anything else. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. It was like, I don't know, once I started you have these conversations and they're very normal and, you know, people are, are very, are, they're quite respectful of the process and no one's out there trying to, you know, screw anyone over. It's, it's a, just like a, like a normal transaction. What are the lessons that you learned from that multi-year process of trying to turn, you know, food raiser around both on the personal side or even on the career side? I think there's some things that I wish I'd done a little bit differently. I definitely don't think I was risky or I was enough of a risk taker. Um, I was a little bit overly cautious at times. And I think that can be a kiss of death for a lot of startups, right? To say, look, things are kind of sort of working. So let's not rock the boat too much. I think when it's a kind of sort of thing, that might not be enough. And you should really try and, and 
do something that you you really believe is gonna it's gonna work, even if there's even if it's a very even if it's quite risky. I I know right now I think I feel like there's a trend of like saying that you know fail fast is not applicable and and so on. But in in some ways I I believe that it would have been better to try something that might have actually blown up in a good way or perhaps in a bad way. And we're like, okay, well, at least we have tried instead of sometimes like puttering along. Um, the second thing is on a personal level, I know that I, in the next project, whatever that may be, I need, I need someone, I need a team. I was the sole senior person at the company. And at times like I was so lonely I have to make all these like classes there for you to talk to, like to share your idea with, right? It's like you're talking exactly, to <laughs> exactly. Like investors, you know, they're kind of sort of there, but they don't understand necessarily the, the day to day that you're going through. And you know, I had staff, but they're the, they were either a bit too junior, or you also they're not the right people to to talk to about maybe some of the stuff, right? Um, especially if it might involve them. Yeah, and I think like for some too, it's like the weight of like the decisions. Also, it's maybe some of them aren't ready to take that on mentally or in like the career. And yeah, then- and you know, it's not about they signed up for. In, yeah, in, in a way. So for me, next time I'm definitely gonna prioritize like having someone that I can really, I can really work with. And then like. Right now, are you on like sort of a sabbatical trying to figure things out or is it more of like a break, but you know what you're going to do next? So, you know, I was supposed to end up in Africa and then I I was like, I'll just go to Asia for two years and it's been uh, 12. (laughs) I really like it here. I want to stay in Asia. I want to stay specifically, I think, Southeast Asia. I really like the startup ecosystem here. You know, it's, it's still growing. It's it's quite young and, it, and, you know, people have this, I mean, I'm sure, you know, right. Like you, the, you, you, you are kind of helping give more exposure to, to the ecosystem. And this, I feel like this is like energy that's quite raw and people just want to like be part build of stuff. <laughs> and yeah, you know, people just want to do stuff and build stuff and, and there isn't a lot of infrastructure yet. So it's like, we're kind of still on our own and all helping each other kind of make it happen. And I think I want to be a part of that, whatever that may be. But yes, in the meantime, I've been taking a little bit of a break. I took the time to do a little bit of uh, research, which I, I shared with you earlier. I, yeah. A small personal project on the link between attending, you know, elite universities and founders' ability to raise money from VC, um, which I, I enjoyed. You know, there's it's not affiliated to any institution or any company. I just did it for myself to understand the ecosystem a bit more and maybe share what I found with with other people. Yeah, and it's interesting. But can you share a bit about your findings for people who haven't like haven't seen it? Sure. So in, intuitively, you know, everyone says, yes, well, of course, if you graduated from Harvard, you're going to have an easier time raising from VC. And what I did was I, was I basically tried to support that intuition with some numbers. So I looked at almost 800 startups in Southeast Asia that have raised from VC in the last few years. And... Sure enough, there is a correlation between having graduated from a top 30 world university and raising from VC. So the ones who did attend those universities raise more, but with some caveats. So the at the seed stage, it doesn't really seem to matter. 
So everyone gets the same amount, regardless of whether you graduated from Harvard or your local community college. Where you start seeing a bigger effect is at the later stages. So Series C, Series D, I saw a difference of 3x average. So people who did graduate from Harvard and are raising Series C are raising three times more than, than people, which is kind of wild. But yeah, three times at yeah. that stage. <laughs> well, it's a difference between 50 million and 150 million, right? It's, yeah. it's a crazy, crazy, it's crazy huge. number. Then the other thing that, that I, I saw was that at the undergraduate level, there isn't much of an, of an effect. So what actually matters more is your graduate degree. If you got you know, your, your MBA or your master's degree or your PhD from one of these top schools, then there seems to be a much stronger effect. Whether you did your maths and philosophy degree at Oxford or in Spain or wherever, uh, seems to matter less. And then I think like to wrap up, I want to ask you one question that I ask everybody that comes onto the podcast and that is outside of work, what's one thing that you want to achieve in your personal life? And the timeline is anytime. It could be something you do in the next three months, next three years, and next 30 years. But what comes to mind when I ask you the question? The, the big ticket item for me will be to start a family, right? So I um, have really enjoyed my career. I've had a lot of adventure and I would love to continue doing that with a much, with a team, right? So with a partner and with, you know, hopefully uh, a larger family down the line that may require some lifestyle changes that I'm, I feel ready for. A smaller one, a more fun one is I, so I really like, I, I really like triathlon. I enjoy competing in swimming, cycling, and running. And I have managed to get third place in my age group a few times throughout oh, wow. my, my triathlon career. And so I really want first. to get at least second place. Well, of course, first. But like, <laughs> I want to get, okay, next one, let's get second. And then, and then we can get first. When is the next triathlon? I actually have one next month, but I don't think that's the one. Let's, let's hope it is, <laughs> Life can survive. Yes, yes. <laughs> yes, please wish me luck and I will train hard for it. Well, thank you so much, Al. I really enjoyed speaking with you today. Thanks, Amanda.